The liturgy is in fact the first teacher of catechism. Being more is not just what we get to define, it's how God calls us to himself. He is the more. To do a little mystagogical catechesis. Mystagogical catechesis. Huh? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I don't understand. <laughs> is that a little too hot? Sorry. Be more. That makes sense. Be more. Yes. This is Mysticat, your podcast for mystagogical catechesis. I'm Father Andrew Strobel. And I am Curtis Ketty. And today we do have a question, don't we, Curtis? Are we the virus? Are we the virus? Wait, am I the virus? <laughs> In other words, is humanity the problem with the world? I have a question. What do you think about all these memes about we are the virus? Have you seen this where like animals are coming back into towns, you know, like McDonald's has sheep in the parking lot where all this, like the, the earth is healing itself because uh, humans aren't out and about. Right. And here, what we discover is how the, sort of the atheistic secularist mindset is actually anti-human. It's a culture yeah. of death. It It's self-loathing. It sees humans as just another animal on the earth and the worst one. Yeah. And so we talk about population control. We talk about, you know, how humans have ruined everything. And in a sense, it's convincing because there is an element of truth to it. Humans did ruin everything in, in a certain sense, but um, they're, they're missing the fact that humans also have an inherent dignity, that yes. are, they're very different from the beasts, that they, yeah. all, they have an immaterial soul, etc. That were the pinnacle. Or they are an immaterial soul. Yeah, it's pretty wild because I see that, um, you know, being shared um, as a joke. But then you really do wonder, are people taking this serious? Like, do they really think that humans are, um, you know, the disease? So, spoiler, in the latest Godzilla movie, wasn't that King of the Monsters? Did you see that one? It had the blue cover or poster? No, I haven't seen any Godzilla movies since the Matthew Broderick one. Spoiler alert. It's all mm -hmm. about eco-terrorists claiming that the earth needs to reboot basically and get rid of all the humans, you know, and the monsters are going to do that and bring the earth back to restart. Um, yeah. It's really sounds a little bit like uh, Thanos as well. Yeah. So much, actually so many films these days talk about how humans um, need to be done away with. Mm. And it's so crazy because it's being made by humans. Yeah humans are, are the ones like there's nobody else expressing this except for human beings. We are such a sick race of creatures. Yeah, we are. We're self, so clearly we're self-loathing and it's, it's because of our dignity that we have that we even have the possibility for evil, right? Like it's easy if you want to take morality out of the picture and just say, no, what is good is just the natural. So animals who have no culpability to their will and can't do actually good things or evil acts. They, they just are. Um, compared to humans, which actually, because we have the capacity for good and evil in our acts, uh, people get all wound up that we do evil things. And we do. We abuse one another. We abuse the environment. We destroy creation. But we also have the capacity to give glory to God in such an incredible way. And we have this self-loathing, though, because we just opt out of that, where we think it's too hard. Um, <laughs> I don't know what it is. Like, it's it's oh, look at it. of sanctity. You, yes. you look at at the beginning, you have things like like Star Trek, the original Star Trek, 
which exalted humanity. So it's, it's kind of like still kind of a secularist model and it's holding up humanity on a pedestal and saying, this is the, this is the ultimate. All the alien races need to be human, need to be like the human species. However, the implications of that, the implications of this atheistic mindset where we're just another creature, they begin to sink in. It's like, okay, if this is true, then humans are really the worst. Mm-hmm. Like we really, we really have ruined everything and there's no point. Like, what are we even doing here? And it's so strange because not only do we have a self-loathing, but there's almost this absence of self-reflection. Mm-hmm. It's like, like, do you really think we're the same as a penguin? Like there's so clearly there's something else going on. Like penguins are making documentaries about humans. We have the flood in that, in that flood fantasy we are putting ourselves in the position of God again. Exactly. We want to judge. We want to be the judge. And that's why I really think right now there's such a, a push for our Lord's uh, divine mercy, right? Like in this sense, God is the judge. <laughs> and he is the only one who can sort out this whole mess. And we look at the world and we look at uh, the fact that it's broken and fallen and we want to fix it now. And it's like, okay, well, the only fix is the restoration uh, through Jesus Christ. Actually, that's something that was like super powerful in what St. John Paul II said about the laity in Christi Fidelius Laici in 1988, when he was reflecting on the role of the lady in the church, such an incredible role. He said, in particular, the lay faithful are called to restore to creation all its original value. You know, that's all. Just restore to creation all its original value. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, but that's the mission, right? Is we, we have the option. We can either do the hard work of actually restoring creation to its original value through the sanctification of ourselves and the world in Christ, or we just say, no, 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 no. It's done. It's irredeemable. It's really a question of is redemption possible for creation? Well, and redemption has already taken place. Yes. And we don't sanctify ourselves we are sanctified through the incarnation and the incarnation is key here because God, you know, yeah, we have the flood, but then God could have saved us in so many, so many ways, but he chooses to save us by becoming one of us, actually making Adam's seed part of its own redemption. Like out of Adam's stock comes the redeemer. And so human beings actually get to participate in its, in their redemption because God becomes one of us. And then, elevates and sanctifies our humanity. And in so much as we join with Christ are united to him through the sacraments, through especially baptism and Eucharist, then like our humanity um, returns is restored to its original value and then goes even further. Yeah. We become partakers in the divine nature. Yeah. It is pretty, pretty amazing when you consider then too, um, how our Lord didn't reject us. Like you said, how he became one, one of us. And that's what we celebrate. Of course, in the liturgical year, it's beautiful. You know, when we celebrate um, Christmas and the incarnation in one particular way, but then we come back to March 25th and celebrate the annunciation when the incarnation took place. And then of course his pat, our Lord's passion and death and resurrection. But then we get eventually to the ascension when, um, you know, mm. the fulfillment there in such an incredible way, of uh, of all of humanity now being united in a sense uh, to the Father. I mean, at the right hand of the Father. It's just, it's it's incredible. And then the descent of the Holy Spirit, so that we can truly live 
in the world, um, sharing in his mission. But you know, it's it's funny, I guess how how we just want to like skip over all of that. <laughs> like we just want to just focus on the brokenness and and instead of on the cure. And it really is the incarnation. Someone on Twitter this week was asking, what heresy are you most tempted by? You know, what heresy are mm. you most tempted by? And people had all sorts of different answers, but one person, um, you know, said Arianism, right? Like mm. it'd make just things a lot easier if um, Jesus wasn't actually God. You know, if he was just like the greatest of men and then just think if we didn't have the hope we do in Jesus Christ, that he actually, that God actually took on our flesh, that the incarnation is actually real. Yeah. What would we do? We boil Jesus down to his message sometimes mm -hmm. like that. He came to deliver a message and we, we forget that the message he's delivered was the one that all the prophets have been delivering yes. the whole time. Like he just kind of opens it up for us that the true revelation is not necessarily in the words that Jesus said, but in who he was. Yeah. Like who was Jesus in his person? Yeah. That is the ultimate revelation. And that's why in the creed, we don't mention any of Jesus' teachings. Yeah. We say what he did, you know, that he was born yeah. of a virgin, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and was buried, and rose again the third day and ascended into heaven and will come again in glory. Like that's what we talk about. That's the revelation. It's pretty amazing when we have a God who doesn't just tell, he shows, right? Like that's what they talk about with good authors. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't just talk about what's going on. They show it through the actions of the characters that they're writing. Well, we're not just like characters in some play. We have this ridiculous dignity and for God to take on our flesh and enter into the human experience in all ways, but sin, um, I mean, it's so beautiful, but that's what we miss out on when we just say, oh, no, no, we need it all to be um, destroyed and start again. It's like, well, that's not your call, one. But then, two, you miss out on the whole story of sanctifying the world in Christ. That's right. That's the history of our salvation. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember one of my professors, he uh, said once that where, you know, authors write using words. God, who authored all of creation, writes using events, mm. you know, like events in history. That is the way God writes and that he reveals himself through these events. Um, so it's not just the word, but it's the deeds also. It's the action. And that we then are each called as well to uh, put into action our faith. So we don't just speak the words, yeah. but we put it into action. Um, I was actually just reading a reflection today on um, that moment in Matthew where the woman who's been hemorrhaging for 12 years reaches out to touch Jesus' garment and he turns around and, and says, your faith has healed you. Mm -hmm. Your faith has healed you. Um, and the idea that in that one, uh, one action, we get a sort of a glimpse of what we're called to in the Christian life. Faith, word, and deed. So she had the faith that she could be healed. You know, she spoke it. She said, I must reach and touch the hem of his garment. And then she actually did it. And through those three things, she experienced her salvation. Yeah. And that we too are called to that. And sometimes we'll stop at one. We'll be like, well, I believe up here, but we don't want to speak it. Yeah. Or then we speak it, but we don't want to do anything with it. You know? Well, and it's, it is an understanding too of 
what it actually means to belong to the body of Christ, what it actually means to be uh, to become one with Jesus Christ in baptism, that are, we actually are one with him, you know, and his life uh, is in us. And I think it's, it, it, you know, taking a step further when our deeds, like, so what you were saying, right? Um, when our beliefs, our words and our deeds um, all add up to this big yes throughout our life to Christ and we're sanctified, we become holy. His life expands in us in a sense, right? Like we're completely transformed into him. Well, then we become a saint, you know, if we stay united to him uh, into death. And then we actually honor the actual flesh of the saints in relics. And I know this is off-putting for some people because it's like so strange. It's so, so strange. Like if you just take a step back and say, wait a second, you chop up the bones of saints or you distribute some of their blood or you, you take like, you know, hair clippings and you, you say that this is somehow special to you. It's like, yeah, but it makes sense if you actually understand what we mean by being one with Jesus Christ, what we mean by the church, that we are truly one with him. And the church, um, you know, includes the members who are in heaven in purgatory and on earth. And that if I am sanctified, if I become holy, then it's actually not just me you're touching. It's Christ. Like he has truly transformed this flesh. Um, and it, it's wild, but we, instead of thinking, you know, Oh no, it's actually possible to be transformed into Christ. We just think, Oh no, you know, we, we just need a do over. And I think that's the current out there. Like the whole, we are the virus like joke for some people isn't a joke. You know, it's not a joke. It's no, no, trying no. to lower us to less than the animals. And uh, I mean, but we get the same temptation too. When we talk about after someone dies, them becoming an angel, because we just don't understand human anthropology. I saw that, that, that there was some headline about um, don't lower me <laughs> after death to an angel. Like the angels are their own thing and humans are their own thing. Um, in essence, one day we will judge angels. Jesus said, yeah. we will judge angels. Jesus tells us it's wild. And we get to do, or I guess St. Paul, that's St. Paul's story. St. Paul tells us, but, and we get to do something. The angels don't, well, we get a lot, do a lot of things. The angels don't, um, that we just, we want to reject. Like I, I, I was, uh, listening to an exorcist talk about this because, um, the whole misunderstanding of gender, Right. Instead of talking about authentic human sexuality, but now all this confusion about gender um, identity, you know, is really it's 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 so strange because it's a rejection of the actual flesh. Right. And mm -hmm. that the evil one loves to get us off of what is true, beautiful and good and what is actual reality into this confusion. And it was such an interesting perspective because he's talking about, you know, the evil one who tempts all of us to, to be lower than ourselves, every sin, right? Not just a particular confusion about like gender uh, identity, but um, like anything that goes away from the true, whether you're morally culpable or not, um, the evil one relishes. But just think like, because the angels don't have that, they don't have a body. Therefore, they don't have that gift of human sexuality, you know? And so... It, it just it, human sexuality yeah of human sexuality of course because they're angels right but also the demonic fallen angels they mock the incarnation too when it comes to possession right the the devil possessing somebody trying to take on their flesh mocks the incarnation of god who has taken on flesh and so you know we just we just need to realize the beauty the dignity we have 
in our own flesh. And I think the confusion that's out there is an extension of the general confusion we have about the goodness of the human person. Yeah. And I would say that that perspective out there about us being the virus, I don't know if it's an explicit of conscious rejection of the incarnation in Christianity. I think what it does is expresses the wound mm -hmm. that's within each of us that we're broken and but it, it's it's our brokenness without any kind of explanation yeah. or possibility of redemption. So it's just this reflection on brokenness. And the answer, the answer to that brokenness, the only thing that can heal the wound is the incarnation. Yes. And that's the answer that people need. But yeah, like even a lot of Christians don't understand the gravity of the incarnation of what that actually meant and what the ascension did as well, like bringing humanity into heaven for the first time into the holy of holies um and now we kind of take it for granted like that's just what we're for those who believe in god yeah. we just we're born we die we go to heaven right that's what we i'm a good person i go to heaven and we don't even think about the incarnation in that. yeah it's it's amazing um you know the the we are the virus yeah it might not be like an explicit rejection of the incarnation. I mean, it's an implicit rejection of the incarnation. Yes, absolutely. Not explicit. But what's interesting about it too, it's almost like what do you do if on the scale of trying to judge reality of the way things are, you just only look at the brokenness, fallen humanity, sin, right? Instead of the Father's love. The reason I'm, I'm framing it that way is because of the uh, wonderful quote from St. John Paul II, where he, uh, where I've seen so many people like put this in um, online, like like a picture of it, basically of these words uh, on like a social media pr uh, profile, where I'm. We are not the sum total of our sins. We are the sum total of the father's love. So when you try to make a value judgment on reality, if you only look at the brokenness. Of course, then you're tempted to think, well, the people are the virus. Look at the mess we've made. Look at our brokenness. Look at all the horrible things we do to one another and to the to all of creation. However, what if we instead risk looking at the Father's love and putting all of it in context? And that's the incarnation. The incarnation shows us the Father's love. If we've seen our Lord Jesus Christ, we've seen the Father. So the, the incarnation is the way we get to see the Father's love uh, in the fullest sense. The way the truth and the life. Woo! The incarnation is totally unique. Yeah. And there's really no metaphor or analogy or anything that can, that can even come close to doing justice to it. It's so epic. I mean, it actually transforms our nature. Um, the best movies I can think of that even touch on the theme, it's always, it, there's an ambiguity. There's like a question. Um, so like, for example, the mission. Spoiler alert. Starring uh, Jeremy Irons and Robert De Niro. Great movie about Jesuit missionaries several hundred years ago in South America. And, you know, the church is forced to abandon these missions for political reasons. And, like, the Portuguese come in and they're going to massacre these natives that they have um, just, you know, evangelized. And they've, they're, all, they're all now these little Catholics, these little baby Catholics. And the Portuguese army is going to come in and massacre them. And you have these two priests, one who used to be a slave trader, Robert De Niro, and then Jeremy Irons, the head of the order. And they're both in this village, and they both have to make a choice. Um, Robert De Niro's character decides that he's going to arm himself again, take up his arms that he abandoned when he made his vows. He's going to train the other natives to fight. 
and they're going to fight off the attackers and and sacrifice their lives doing so. Jeremy Irons is like, I refuse to fight. This is in God's hands. I'm his servant. Um, and he gathers the, the other group of people together and they do a Eucharistic procession through the village when the Portuguese army comes to attack. Um, and the climax of the movie, spoiler alert, is that Robert De Niro, he, he is shot and he falls down dying, but he will not die. He keeps looking up, watching Jeremy Irons, who's holding the monstrance, leading these people. And there's explosions going everywhere, bullets flying, and Jeremy Irons is just serenely walking with the monstrance. And Robert De Niro is watching him. What's going to happen? Sure enough, bam, right in the throat, Jeremy Irons gets shot and goes down. And Robert De Niro sees it. But then, just as it's about to, he's about to die, he sees a native pick up the monstrance and continue the procession. And both priests die and everyone is massacred in the village. And all that's left is just a handful of kids who are picking through the wreckage. And that's how the movie ends. It looks at you and says, what was the right choice? What was the fullest expression of humanity? And it leaves it up to the viewer. That's the kind of movie I can get behind. Like that sort of that question. And man, highly recommend recommend that movie and i'll just point out this we've been talking about the germ and in paragraph five of the germ you have this incredible line it says this people that's us the faithful this people the holy in its origin nevertheless grows constantly in holiness and how how do we grow con um, constantly in holiness by conscious active and fruitful participation in the mystery of the Eucharist. We grow in holiness by participation, conscious, active, and fruitful participation in the mystery of the Holy Eucharist, which is an extension of the incarnation. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? And there's the, and that's, I think of Jeremy Irons with that monstrance mm. and, you know, both died, but one, one died in holiness, you know, because of the Eucharist. I think that's that's how I answer the question. You know, it's so interesting because we 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 love these feel good stories right now. Like I think we just want like this uh, this relief from all the suffering in the world, of course. So we've turned to feel good stories, which on their own isn't bad. But it's like okay, but we we also desire more because the feel good story just becomes like like a little. Um, a little moment of relief. It becomes like, you know, this, this nice deep breath, but it's not totally satisfying because of all the suffering. And it's really only in the story of the incarnation where there's the possibility for all to be restored in Christ, that it's not just another feel good story. It's like you said, it's a story unlike any other. And that's the role of the lay faithful in the world is restoring the whole world in Christ, all of creation. I mean, and the way that that's done is beautiful. St. John Paul II and um, Christi Fidelis Leici um, said, the faithful are shares in the priestly mission for which Jesus offered himself on the cross and continues to be offered in the celebration of the Eucharist for the glory of God and the salvation of humanity. And this is where he gets, it's, it's awesome. He, he starts talking about um, baptism and the council. He says, incorporated in Jesus Christ, the baptized are united to him and to his sacrifice and the offering they make of themselves and their daily activities. Speaking of the lay faithful, the second Vatican council says for their work, prayers, 
apostolic endeavors, their ordinary married and family life, their daily labor, their mental and physical relaxation, if carried out in the spirit, even the hardships of life are patiently borne. All of these become spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then tying it to the mass during the celebration of the Eucharist, these sacrifices are most lovingly offered to the father along with the Lord's body. Thus as worshipers whose every deed is holy, the lay faithful consecrate the world itself to God. Now what I love about that is so much, but I just want to point out there's not an aspect of human life except for sin that even it's transformed by God's mercy in another way, but not an aspect of human life, whether it's work or relaxation, relationship, family life that's excluded from what can be part of the good news of Jesus Christ. Wait, so, okay, this means that just like Jesus through the incarnation, just like the Son, I should mm -hmm. say, through the incarnation, elevates humanity. So we, by uniting to Christ, our whole life becomes elevated to a new level because when we join all of our messy lives to him, mm -hmm. our life takes on a new meaning. I think this this is the, the very definition of what it means for us to be a royal priesthood, yes. like that all of us, all of the faithful are what we call the common priesthood of the faithful, different from you as a ministerial priest mm -hmm. who, you know, minister in a specific way. Um, but we are all part of the common priesthood because we all are joined with Christ's priesthood and we all are, in a, in a sense, standing in the gap for all of creation, yeah. right? No, we, sure. we bring it all along with Because us. when we talk about priesthood there's only one priest and that's sometimes what we get confused about right. it's only jesus christ he is the high priest any share in pre in his priesthood doesn't take away from him being the one priest so we as the church are his body and the lay faithful are sharing his priesthood as his body and ministerial priests simply sharing his priesthood um as part of the head but for the sake of the body. Like that's what we always forget sometimes is that the reason we have ministerial priesthood is to serve the body, um, which is awesome. And in the same sense, St. Paul talks about how as a father, my fatherhood flows from the father. Mm -hmm. Like I'm like a shadow of the reality. Mm -hmm. So there's only one father. Yes. There's only one teacher. There's only one priest. And we all share in that in different ways. Yeah. So you share in the fatherhood of God in a certain way. And I share in the fatherhood of God in a certain way, yeah, biological and ministerial. St. Peter's spiritual. one in his first letter in chapter two um, gets into this in such a beautiful way. Be yourselves built into a spiritual house to be a royal priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people that you may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, you are not the virus, right? <laughs> like you are not what needs to be stamped out. Instead, you are the vaccine. Yeah, you are the vaccine. <laughs> you are the cure to the brokenness of the world is the royal priesthood, God's people, you know, given to the world to be sanctified. And let's just quickly touch on that phrase, royal priesthood, yep. because this has a lot of meaning in mm -hmm. it too. We're not just a priesthood, we're a royal priesthood. And this stems back to, of course, David, yep. and then before him to Melchizedek, yes. which is pretty obscure biblical reference, but the king of Salem, which ended up being Jerusalem, mm -hmm. um, you know, he was both a king and a priest. 
And the idea of king and priest going together, you know, David, the reason David was able to be have a priestly role was because he was the king of Jerusalem. Yep. In the line from Melchizedek, you're a priest forever uh, in the line of Melchizedek. So we are a royal priesthood. Mm-hmm. We share in the in the, um, the vocations of prophet, priest, and king. Yes. When we are baptized and anointed, prophet, priest, and king. So maybe explain a little bit how we are royal as well. What Where's our kingly role? Well, it's because of who Jesus Christ is, of course. Right. So mm-hmm. he is the king. He is Christ the king, which is interesting in terms of one of his titles, Prince of Peace, because he is the Prince of Peace. And that's, I, th- I mean, that's a nod, correct me if I'm wrong, to Melchizedek, even too. The king of Salem. Salem means peace. Yeah. And he was the king of mm-hmm. peace. And to be in the line of Melchizedek, this priest who is pretty obscure, but who we mention in the first Eucharistic prayer explicitly by name, because yeah. we don't know where he came from and where he's going. There's some, there's some scholarly, there's some scholarly debate about oh, that. Yeah. I'll share it in a minute. I'll share it in a bit. Oh, oh boy. Yeah. There is. It's good. It's good stuff. It ties into what we're talking yeah, about. Who he is. Right. But, um, but then right. what does he offer? He offers bread and grapes. Yeah. And it's pretty amazing to consider then, you know, this, this office of the same being the king and the priest, but this royalty is all about who Christ is, that we truly are um, as his body. We are truly sons and daughters of God. And so we share in then that royal line. Um, and since he was of the line of David, um, it's really important. You know, David was anointed as a king, and so too we are anointed. St. Augustine actually gets into that um, about how in the um, old covenants, only kings and priests were anointed. And in the new covenant, we of course are, are anointed as well. And we're called Christians. We take on that title of anointed Christ means anointed. So we're we're called Christians. And he actually puts it this way, as we call everyone Christians in virtue of a mystical anointing. So we call everyone priests because all are members of only one priesthood. So in other words, right, we wouldn't say that we're Royal because like you're a King, I'm a King, everybody else's Kings or Queens. No, it's, Jesus Christ is king and we share in his kingship. The same with the priesthood. He is the high priest and we share in his priesthood. Now, you know what anointing with oil symbolized in the Old Testament? What did it symbolize? The coming down of the spirit upon that individual. That was a sign of the spirit coming upon that individual. This is why Jesus said, I must go away so that I can send my spirit to you. He needed to bring humanity into the Holy of Holies so that he could give us his anointing so that we could share in his anointing. It like trickles down to the whole body. And this is so key. Like when we get the seven gifts of the spirit, those are Christ's Mm -hmm. gifts, the armor of God. That's God's armor. All of that stuff belongs to him and we get to share, share in it. Okay. So here's, what's interesting too. St. John Paul II does get into this in again, this uh, writing beautifully about the lay faithful. When he says, because the lay faithful belong to Christ, Lord and King of the universe, they share in his kingly mission and are called by him to spread the kingdom in history. They exercise their kingship as Christians, above all, in the spiritual combat in which they seek to overcome in themselves the kingdom of sin. So there you go, Curtis. And then to make a gift of themselves so as to serve in justice and in charity, Jesus, who is himself present in all his brothers and sisters above all in the very least. So there is an aspect of the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of the world, right? 
So there's the kingdom of God that has to um, actually take place in me, right? <laughs> that his kingship yeah. has to be uh, over me. So objectively, Jesus Christ is king of the universe. But subjectively over me, is he king over me yet today? Well, if I'm still attached to this world, if I'm still compromising with sin, then no, he's not my king. I have to, I have to allow him to be my king every day. Is it? And there's a, there's a lot of reflection that has been done about what even the kingdom of God means. Yeah. Like when it's being spoken about in the gospel, you know, the reign of God, um, God's action in the world. Um, but it seems I, I could just skip ahead to the point that I eventually was convinced of that the kingdom of God at its most basic sense means Christ. Yeah, It's him in his person. He is the seed of the kingdom, which is now grown over time to this great tree, um, which is the church, his body. But the kingdom of God is Christ is the presence of God acting in the world is through the church. Yeah. You know, we have one spirit, well, and to go back you know, we share in his gift. To the incarnation, that's the understanding of the church, right? That it's an extension of the incarnation in time and space. That it right. is Christ here and now. And, of and, course, across all time and space. And going back to St. Augustine, um, what we have now since the incarnation, because Jesus is the new Adam. Mm-hmm. There's still an old Adam. And there's now these kind of two conflicting cities yep you have the city of man and the city of god you have the old adam and the new adam and by baptism we leave one city and join the other but we're we're seeking to expand that kingdom that cure we're fighting the disease and we're you know we're healing the wounds um so yeah i love the idea we are not the virus we are the vaccine yeah we are the cure because if you only look at the kingdom of man then yeah it's like okay, on our own, left our own. Yeah. What can we do? But the kingdom of God that we get to participate in that our Lord, you know, took on flesh to redeem. um, That's worth fighting for. And that's where. So now let me, now let me bring us back full circle because we're already talking about the flood. There is um, a contingent of scholars. Okay. So here's, here's the context. So Abraham, encounters this king, this mysterious king, Melchizedek, king of Salem, which ends up being um, Jerusalem later, who offers bread and wine, bread and grapes as a sacrifice. It's very strange that he's offering this as a sacrifice. Strong Eucharistic overtones there, foreshadowing the Eucharist. But who is this mysterious Melchizedek that even Abraham offers homage to? Like this, this king. And so there's this contingent of scholars that believes that sort of done the, done the math and they say that this king is actually Shem, mm-hmm. one of the three sons of Noah, or the survivors of the flood. Of There's only eight humans who survived the flood, according to the scripture. And the sort of the one good son, the one really good son, Shem, ends up becoming this king and being known as Melchizedek. And so there's, there's this connection with the flood, with this restoration of humanity, with the beginning of a new race. And you have it in Melchizedek and fulfilled in Christ. So I think that's really, well, it's interesting to think that not to simply, um, spiritualize things or dismiss the very real, but the spiritual doesn't dismiss the real, um, situation on the ground right now with so many people suffering with the coronavirus and with all the needs of the world, we have to remember that God's rescue mission for all this 
is himself. You know, all the covenants that led up to the final covenant in Jesus Christ, his incarnation to redeem all of creation. I mean, that's the rescue mission. That's the relief we need. And it's not to say that that doesn't also look like us doing what we need to do in terms of uh, protecting the most vulnerable through social distancing, through um, all the sacrifices that need to be made um, out of love and charity for one another to build one another up and to keep us healthy and to uh, serve those who are sick. But it does mean we can't think that, okay, even if everybody is simply healthy in body, that that's enough. Like in a sense, mm-hmm. that's just another feel-good story. And that's good for a moment, but it's not good for eternity. It's not enough. And I love that you use the word sacrifice because, of course, only priests can offer sacrifice. Yeah. So all the, and that's a really important point. Okay. In the midst of all of this, I, and I always think about the kids in the midst of this because they are, they're making so many sacrifices right now to not be with their friends and to have to uh, be around <laughs> each other, <laughs> siblings, mom and dad, all of this in a way that, you know, I know they're making tremendous sacrifices, but that's part of the dignity that we have in Jesus Christ, that we truly can unite all of our sacrifices to his one sacrifice for all time. And we, we like, how do you do that in a world where you can't go to mass? Well, you still have the desire though, to be, to unite it to our Lord and the mass is still going on. So even if you can't be physically present at mass, every time the mass is celebrated, it's not the act of just a priest, right? It's an act of the whole body of Christ. Whenever mass is celebrated, even if I'm by myself physically in the chapel here, the whole church is participating in that mass, you know, now not in the same way that is if, you know, the lay faith were, were actually present, but it is an action of the whole body of Christ. You don't separate it out to, you know, it's just the priest, you know, it's the whole body of Christ. So your, your sacrifices are still being offered to the father at every mass, Mm. which is wild. And that's beautiful to know knowledge is power you know i i was reading on facebook you know you've been doing all these live stream masses and somebody commented um you should ask your guardian angel to attend mass for you. yeah it's beautiful and i thought that was a really cool idea you know to ask your guardian angel and of course i forget all the time that i have a guardian angel i don't think of my guardian angel enough but that i can send him whatever that means because you know spiritual beings aren't in space or time but i can send him or her, or there's no, no there's sorry, there's no there's angelic no. sexuality. No. Send it, <laughs> send my guardian angel to mass on my behalf. Um, I think that's beautiful. It is beautiful. So um, It's really, really beautiful. And actually I wanted to um, pray then this prayer of sending, having your guardian angel go to mass. I didn't even know you were going to bring that oh. up, but. Oh, weird. And where did I find it? Well, on the jp2kc.org slash prayers on our website, which is awesome. So let's, let's close with this. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. A prayer to your guardian angel. O holy angel at my side, go to church for me. Kneel in my place at holy mass where I desire to be. At offertory in my stead, take all I am and own and place it as a sacrifice upon the altar throne. At holy consecration's bell, adore the seraph's love. My Jesus hidden in the host, come down from heaven above. Then pray for those I dearly love and those who cause me grief, that Jesus' blood may cleanse all hearts and suffering souls relieve. And when the priest's communion takes, O bring my Lord to me, 
that his sweet heart may rest on mine, and I his temple be. Pray that this sacrifice divine may mankind's sins efface, then bring me Jesus' blessing home, the pledge of every grace. Amen. May Almighty God bless all of you, the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been uh, Mystagogical Catechesis. I'm Father Andrew Strobel. I'm Curtis Petty. This was Mysticat.